Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible clinical psychologist and author, Dr. Keith Witt. Hello, Keith, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Thanks for having me on. Today, we're going to be talking about loving completely. And for those that don't know, Dr. Keith Witt is a licensed psychologist, teacher, and author who has worked with individuals and couples for almost four decades. He has conducted over 65,000 therapy sessions and published eight books, including Shadow Light and Integral Mindfulness. In presentations and classes around the U.S. and internationally, Keith has explored love, therapy, interpersonal relationships, and development from multiple perspectives, weaving together neuroscience, integral theory, wisdom traditions, and numerous forms of psychotherapy into a coherent cosmology of love and healing. In 2018, he published the book, Loving Completely, a five-star practice for creating great relationships, which is the topic for today's show. How are you today, Keith? I'm great today, Zach. How are you? I'm well, and I'm excited, and I'm so happy to have come across your work, and I have so many questions. I just want to hop right into it. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about was integral theory. As you have written and talked about integral therapy and psychology, and your books, Waking Up and Sessions, were two of the first books on integrally informed psychotherapy. So for listeners unfamiliar, what does integral theory mean? It was developed by Ken Wilber in a a series of over 30 books that he's written um, since the 90s. And it's it's what's called a meta-theory. It's a way of understanding the cosmos where all the different perspectives fit together in a coherent form. So you can take pure spirituality on one side and pure empiricism on the other, and they fit together within a structure that shows the interconnections and the evolving nature of knowledge because we're all living, breathing evolution. More specifically, Ken Wilber wanted to have the fewest number of perspectives that gave you the best understanding of the present moment. And that became what's called in uh, the integral or aqua model. And so we could talk about this for, for a long time, but briefly, in every moment, you can look at it from the outside as if you're looking at you and me as objects, as individual objects, and measuring us like scientists would measure us. Or you could look at it from the inside. What are we feeling, thinking, imagining? You can look at individuals from the inside and the outside, and you can look at at groups from the inside and the outside. So you could have have an audio of you and me talking and transcripts and so on, and instrumentation even, but it wouldn't really capture the feeling that you and I have being in contact with each other. So that's one set of perspectives. Another set of perspectives is based on the fact that we're always shifting from one state of consciousness to the other. And so the world that we see is influenced by what state of consciousness we're in and what type of person we are. And what state of consciousness we're in and what type of person we are and the world that we see is based on where we are on a variety of developmental lines. For instance, there's the cognitive line, how you think. There's the moral line about how your morals are. And we grow on these lines. And at any given moment, we're at a certain altitude on those lines. And of particular interest to me as a psychotherapist are the moral line, the self line, the interpersonal line, and the psychosexual line. Uh, and and a, a line that I call the integration of defenses line, which is how well you can observe your own defensive states and regulate them. And And so... For instance, we we grow through different worldviews. Like a little kid is mostly egocentric. 
Um, but then that kid becomes additionally more conformist between five and 11 when they want to fit into groups around them. And then in 13 or 14, that kid can become additionally more rational where they, they do rational analysis and evaluation of, of the world around them. And if they continue to grow, they can additionally become more pluralistic where they care less about how things uh, rationally work and more about whether people are cared for and whether things are fair. And if they continue to grow, they can additionally become integral where they have a felt appreciation for multiple points of view, diminished fear of death, and understanding that any perspective that we have is just our current best understanding and that there's always better understandings. And in that sense, there's our personal evolution from conception to through death. And then there's the evolution of the universe and they all fit together. And everyone sees a different world at any given moment. And in integral, uh, we have a lot of ways of looking at that and being self-aware of that. And that uh, compassionate self-observation is central to pretty much every single spiritual practice, psychotherapy, and coaching or change work that there is. It all revolves around that capacity for compassionate self-awareness and how many dimensions can you observe in yourself at any given moment and in other people. Wow. So I really love this idea, particularly because I do think it's really important to have a more unified field of theory in the realm of psychology. This is a common criticism, particularly with therapy, is there's so many approaches, right? There's CBT and DBT and a whole alphabet soup of, of approaches. Right, right. And often when you meet with a therapist, you don't know like quite exactly what you're getting into. And, you know, there's different ways to kind of measure the effectiveness of certain therapies. So I'm kind of curious, what is sort of like the, the mainstream psych psychology's perspective on integral theory? Because when I hear you talk about the compassionate field, consciousness, self-awareness, multiple dimensions of our awareness, you know, it can easily devolve into like really far out. Like, what are you smoking, man? That's another episode, Zach. But I was also thinking... 40 years ago, even meditation was like fringe. It was like, you know, some weird, far esoteric thing. And now like there's thousands of studies on the effectiveness of mindfulness. So what do you see the role of integral theory playing now and in the future? Integral is a map. And we're, we're in a world that's in the process of waking up. So there's a lot of people that come from that integral perspective who've never heard of Ken Wilber or of integral because it's not about it's not about knowing that system or that meta theory. It's about growing to the point where you have a felt appreciation for multiple points of view. I mean, integral, the principle is everybody's right, but nobody's right all the time, <laughs> and that's true for all psychotherapies. You know, if you read my books, uh, you'd see a lot of different systems of psychotherapy. And I like them all, but none of them are particularly better or uh, worse than quite a number of other psychotherapies. In that, uh, I was influenced a lot by my doctoral research. I was studying Taoist healing at the time, as it, as it turns out, in 1979, 70, 80, 1978, 79. And so I did a research project to see what kinds of treatment enhance health the most. Uh, talking, talking plus touching, or just uh, touch. And interestingly, my results were that everybody got better if they were working with a practitioner that believed in what they did. And so my my training after that, when I was teaching therapists, when I was practicing therapists, and I was and I was working practicing therapy and working with people, was that every therapist or healer or coach has their own natural healing style. And what you do is you, you send your interest into the world and get feedback and receive influence and develop that natural healing style. And that will evolve throughout your life just as you evolve throughout your life. And in that sense, all the systems, I've never met a psychotherapy system that I felt was inherently a bad system. Many psychotherapy systems have blind spots. A lot of them have, have principles that have been disproved by research um, over the years. For instance, the catharsis model has been disproved by social research and neurobiological research. But generally, they all work. If you work with someone who believes in what they do and cares about you and attunes to you and is interested in your development, you're going to be helped. Now, that being said, there's certain conditions that need certain kinds of attention. Trauma is a good example of that. Certain kinds of relational problems are a good example of that. And by I say it, what I mean by it needs certain kinds of attention if you don't give that kind of attention to trauma or to certain kinds of relational problems, people will stay stuck in their pain. Um, they don't move. And, 
And so as a therapist, if someone's not moving, you go, okay, um, I'll shift to another channel and see if you can move with this channel. Now, the beautiful thing about Integral is Integral takes all the systems and all the uh, approaches and arranges them basically within this large scaffolding of meta theory. And you see how they all have strengths and weaknesses and how they all fit together. And I find that quite beautiful and inspiring. And and when I first had my experience uh, of learning this and, and beginning to expand some of the systems that I had learned and developed over the years, it was so exciting to me that I began to write my books and, and do my teaching. And I've been doing a lot of that ever since. So I want to do a quick follow-up because when you mentioned that everyone is right and no one is right all the time, you know, my first impression is like, what about the wrong people? So I do think, you know, a lot of modern psychological therapies, they all have some of their theories rooted in empiricism. But I think about like phrenology, like when they would look at the shapes of the skull and think about how that relates to the brain, and which is now like an proven to be false, right? So would you still say that that facts still exist? Like there are still like untruths we have to unpack? Oh, absolutely. I, phrenology is an interesting example. So if you put your hands on somebody's head, and particularly if you're looking into their face and with the intent of helping them, you're going to start having impulses and feelings and images of something to help help them with. Now, what they thought with phrenology, it was the shape of the head that was doing that. And because people were having effects, but actually probably was happening is there was a physiological and psychological attunement happening that was somewhat guided by people putting their hands on their heads. And by the way, that's a very powerful way of reading another person. And so when you look at that and you go, well, the part about the shape of the head doesn't seem to uh, hold true, isn't with all the empirical data that we have. But the part about attuning to another person, um, particularly while you're touching them, actually there's some validity to that. And then there's been some good research uh, around energy medicine, especially Donna Eden stuff, that show that. And so, and so you look at stuff and you go, yeah, there's aspects like the, for instance, the catharsis theory is a good example. You know, that know that, that cathartic uh, emotion that you don't like actually is having you practice an emotion you don't like. So that's, that's not valid. But, but as it turns out, one thing that was right about the catharsis m- models, which were developed- And like this- catharsis is when they used to recommend if you're angry, like beat a pillow, yeah, right? Yeah, beat a pillow or scream and shout or shake and, and that stuff. Reevaluation therapy was based on it. George Bach's anger stuff was based on it. But those, those systems, now we're looking at the larger view, were developed in a culture of, of severe repression. I mean, you know, the hippies in 1968 were only about 5 or 6% of the population. Most of the population, you know, I was, I was one of them, but, you know, I wasn't the majority by any stretch of the imagination. Most of the people were very repressed and were coming from an emotionally repressed uh, culture coming out of the Depression and, and World War II and stuff. And so... As it turns out, if you want to change something, you have to feel what you want to change first. And so the catharsis model was valid to the extent that it got people to actually feel and acknowledge their anger or their fear or their sadness or their grief. Now, once you do, you don't stick with it um, unnecessarily. You know, you open up and follow it. And what emotion tends to do is it tends to guide you towards healing action. And then there's a resolution that is reflected in a shift in your emotional state. Um, And so that was one thing that was valid about that model. But the part about continuing to do the the primal scream and that kind of stuff, no, that actually um, was a problem and caused and there's been a lot of that that's happened coming out of the research the last the last 50 years. Though for me, frankly, mostly the research that's, that's come out has validated stuff that I've discovered clinically. Uh, John Gottman's research has been really good with that. Carol Rustbolt's research. There's a lot of, there's just a, a, a wealth of research, social research, neurobiological research, relational research. This validated a lot of things that people that have kind of been up to their necks in therapy for decades ha- have known intuitively, uh, which is kind of validating. And that's, that's validating subjective experience. That's that subjective thing we talked about earlier with objective data, empirical data and social research. And you see how both of those things are important. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting earlier when you mentioned that people tend to get better when they are working with a practitioner who believes what they do. And this applies both to physicians and to therapists is that we do want to find those people that resonate with our own worldview and our own perspective. And many people describe the process of finding a therapist as like dating. <laughs> like you have Very to go much. through a few, like learn a little <laughs> bit about them, see if you resonate. And that will help the therapeutic process, that connection between you and the person who is healing. I think it's a wonderful 
analogy. It basically holds true, particularly in this era of computer dating. Finding a therapist is very much like computer dating. That being said, then when you start working with a therapist, then the, the it depends on how the, the relationship unfolds, and particularly how it unfolds if there's a, a problem. You know, is a therapist able to have a, a wide enough perspective and a deep enough resonance so that if there's a problem, they can resolve it into more trust? Um, and that's very much like in a relationship. Relationships go until there's a problem, and can people resolve that problem into deeper love or not? If they can, then the relationship improves, and if they can't, then it uh, deteriorates. So let's go into relationships and also kind of keep in this idea of integral psychology in our minds. And I'm curious what an integral perspective on this crazy thing we call love, what does that look like? <laughs> well, remember, we grow through different worldviews. So for instance, here a conformist worldview is a worldview where the, the sacred trumps the empirical. And so if, if, if I'm in a worldview like that, then that's going to influence not just how I see the world, it's going to influence my relationships. Similarly, we're different types of people. So one typology system is called the, the big six or the hexago system. People that are more, have more or less honesty or humility. If you were born with a lot of honesty and humility capacity, temperamentally, you're going to be drawn more to people like that. And if you're born with a lot less, you're, you're born, you're going to be drawn to people with less. And, and then that's going to affect your relationships. So there's a lot of that, that kind of stuff that goes on in terms of who we're interested in, how we're attracted and so on. I think what's more relevant is people understanding the, the dynamics, the developmental dynamics of individual development and relational development. And, and integral is very much a developmental theory and very much an evolutionary theory. So most of us are not taught these things. We're not taught about sexuality. We're not taught about sexual development better now than, than when I first came up, you know, in the 60s and 70s. We're not taught about the stages of relationship necessarily, about what creates and maintains a long-term relationship, what it requires. And so one, one important aspect of having great relationships is just to know the basic lay of the land about how we're wired to love. And not only that, how we're wired to love within this cultural context of whatever cultures we're embedded in. And, and then what do we want? Uh, if we want to have a love that is great and that in, continues to improve, what has social research told us uh, works around making that happen? And what has social research told us has told us doesn't work around what's making that happen. And, and how does that particularly apply to what type of person I am and the states of consciousness that I enter in and for my partner? And, you know, that sounds pretty complicated, and it is. But, but it is also useful to know, for instance, that we're drawn to people uh, that kind of match our dreams and our wounds, that are, that are like us in some ways and unlike us in other ways. If there's a little bit of spark, a little bit of erotic polarity that we're drawn to create flirtation and then attraction and then, and then romantic infatuation. And if people fall in love that we're wired to have that work for, to drive us with multiple hormonal systems, about 11 different hormones, hormonal systems, drives us to be into each other and want to have sex with each other for six months to two years. But it sh then it shifts into an intimate bonding stage where it requires more work to keep the relationship uh, successful. It's, it's useful to know that a relationship is a love affair of friendship and a capacity to heal injuries. Wow. Can you say that again? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's useful I know to know. I love that. It's useful to know. It's useful to know. How, and we can talk about this later when we're talking about loving completely the book I wrote. There's all this data. How do, how do you actually use this in loving? You know, okay. I have 18 volumes on my wall about about great relationships. How do I use that stuff to actually have a great relationship? Well, you got to start with basic principles. A committed relationship is a friendship, a love affair, and a capacity to heal injuries. Those are the three foundations of a good committed relationship. And basically- A love affair, a friendship, and a capacity to heal injuries. I love that. That's right. Which is called repair in, in the field. And more specifically- Part of the way that you maintain this friendship, love affair, and capacity to heal injuries is by being responsive to each other, 
noticing the other person's emotional states and responding in a way that where they feel cared about, safe, cared about, and known by you. And, and it's useful to know that we have way, way, way more sensitivity to negative stuff than we do to positive stuff. And so that responsivity needs to be based in a sense of, I do not want to bring negatives to you, uh, if, if at all possible. And if you're bringing negatives to me, I especially don't want to respond with more negatives, which I feel like doing because, of course, well, not necessarily course, but all, relate, all communication is complementary. Couples aren't taught that, that if one person begins to get defensive, the other person automatically, their nervous system reads threat and starts getting defensive. Now, if you know that and can observe that with compassion, self-compassion, self-observation, compassionate other observation. I talk about attunement a lot in my work, and, and you mentioned that in some of your questions. If you can do that, then you cannot respond to those impulses to go into flight, fight, or freeze. You can do other stuff, kinder stuff, more compassionate stuff that includes encourages your partner to get out of that defensive state and get back to love. But that's always an effort. Now, it's it's an effort, but it's possible if you know what I just described, and you know how to do it. And you know that that's necessary in every single relationship. If you're taught that if you have a great love, you don't have to do any of that stuff, then when there's a problem, you go, hmm, my love must not be a very great love. Now, what that does is it, is it, is it motivates you to not lean in to get back to love with your partner. And at that particular point, when you start nurturing resentment and making negative comparisons with your partner and other people, you're starting a long road to betrayal, uh, often secret affairs, but not always. And that separates couples. If you recognize that beginning, you go, no, I need to shift towards being grateful for what I have with my partner and cherishing my partner. Then you are led into creating a repair where you're feeling that love for each other on the other side of the injury. And couples need to learn how to do that one way or another to have a successful long-term relationship. Yeah, I love your observations of what goes wrong and then how we go back to being right. You mentioned how we want to get out of a defensive state and get back to love and how it's easy to ruminate negative mental patterns in turn cultivating these negative mental patterns like resentment that then just create distance in the relationship and we have to shift to being grateful. And you mentioned increasing distance in the relationship sometimes lead to an affair. So I want to go more into that because last year you launched a course called 100 Reasons to Not Have a Secret Affair. And I have a few questions on this, but let's just go back to that root cause, why affairs happen in relationships. Yes. Well, there's many causes. It's one of the reasons that there's 100 reasons. You know, the, the reason that I wrote that book it's a book that I wrote that you can get if you buy the class. I, I never published a book to, um, through a publishing house. I published it on my uh, through that class. Uh, you can get a copy of the book. I was working with this guy one time, and he was going to have a secret affair, and I was it was basically going to be a disaster for his wife and his son. And I, and, you know, and I said, you know, if if you want to break up and have an affair, that's one thing. But having a secret affair is a setup for all kinds of problems, which I got to tell you, I've seen a million of them. I'm, I don't know how many thousands of therapy sessions I'd had at that point, but at least 30 or 40. And, you know, and so finally, you know, at the end of the session, the, you know, and we were scheduling another session. And he said, he said, well, come on, Keith, tell me one, one reason why, tell me why I shouldn't have a secret affair. And I said, there's a hundred reasons you shouldn't have a secret affair. <laughs> so I, I told that to a friend of mine. She said, hey, you should write a book called that. And I thought, that's a great idea. So I wrote that book. Now, the, the, here's the miracle of, of humans and affairs. We're wired to have affairs. We're wired if we have an opportunity to have sex with somebody we're interested in, our nervous system starts talking us into it immediately. Uh, we become more impulsive. We become less self-aware. We start creating automatically our unconscious, this genius, starts, our shadow self starts creating rationalizations for going for it. So we're wired. Even if we're in love with our partner, even if we have a great sexual relationship with our partner, we're in love with our partner, we're wired if we have an opportunity to start talking ourselves into it. And so given that, uh, the most the statistics that are the, the most extravagant ex statistics on secret affairs is that 15 to 25% of women and 25% to 45% of men will cheat on their partner in a long-term relationship. Even if that's true, that means that 55 to 75% of humans refuse to have affairs even when they have opportunities. There, there's no other pair-bond species of mammal or bird that, that can say that. 
that's kind of a triumph of the human interpersonal line of development and moral line of development that, that well over half of people just won't do it even when they have the opportunity, even though we're genetically wired to go for it if we have that opportunity. That's, that's an inspiring thing to me. And so, you know, you start Most off people would not think that was inspiring, that a quarter of women and a third of men end up having affairs. Well, yes. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's, also, it's also not inspiring that half of marriages, first marriages end up divorce and almost, almost and two-thirds of second marriages and three-fourths of third marriages end in divorce. Those aren't inspiring statistics either. But of course, half of first marriages, people stay together and... And if you talk to people who've been together 20 or 30 years, generally they'll say, best thing that ever happened to me was my marriage, and also marriage is hard. Uh, there was a, a guy named Persinger who did a study with 500 couples, and that's exactly, long-term couples, and that's exactly what most all of them said. So the promise of intimacy is great. Modern intimacy has more promise than any other relationship that there is. And, and in any other time of human history, we have more capacity for deeper and more satisfying intimacy now than we, we ever have before, because people have been liberated to a large extent from cultural constraints. And there's a, a high level of psychological sophistication compared to previous generations. That being said, it's very, very difficult to establish and maintain um, a long-term friendship, love, affair, and capacity heal injuries. And that's why people like me are in existence. People like you are in existence. We're here to help people do it. Absolutely, we are. And let's go back into like what it does take to maintain those long relationships, because you mentioned earlier this concept of attunement, this concept of being responsive to each other. You mentioned how important it is to notice and be responsive to our partner's emotional state, let them know that they feel cared for and known. And in your book, Loving Completely, you do have a chapter on attunement as a foundational practice for a relationship. And in it, you write this, you write attunement, which is being aware with acceptance and caring intent of sensation, emotion, thought, judgment, and desire in ourselves and others. So we've talked about the importance of this capacity and I'm wondering how we cultivate it and get better at it because I think it's hard. <laughs> yes, it is definitely hard. There's a beautiful saying from a system called psychosynthesis that was popular in the 60s that I loved. It was, a, it was one of the, the early spiritual systems of psychotherapy that was emerging at the time. Segioli, an Italian guy, developed it. That energy follows thought. And it's a human superpower. Focused intent, focused intent and action in service of principle and driven by resolve. Okay, so I have an intent... I have an action, I have principles that I'm basing that on, and I'm resolved to do that. That's a superpower. Every human being can use that superpower to create miracles. And that, that intent in action revolves around awareness. And all the contemplative practices, this is one of the reasons that, and, and not to mention the, the affect regulation practices, all involve compassionate self-awareness, all of them. Now, you say, well, how, how can we do it? Well, let's, let's just do it for five minutes. You just be aware of your breath going in and out of your body. And especially be, be aware of your breath going in and out of your abdomen. And so as you're aware of breath going in and out of your abdomen, be aware of what you're sensing, what sensations do you have in your body with acceptance and caring intent. Comfortable, tight, loose. My room's a little hot right now. I'm a little hot. With acceptance and carrying intent of sensation. And being aware of breath and sensation with acceptance and carrying intent, be aware of what emotion you might be experiencing right now. Interest, irritation, excitement, boredom, sadness. Just feel that emotion. Feel it in your body. And be aware of it with acceptance and caring intent. And as you're aware of your breath and sensation and emotion with acceptance and caring intent, and you breathe, be aware of thoughts, how thoughts go in and out. You focus on some, not on others. Be aware of thought with acceptance and caring intent. And as we're aware of emotion and sensation and thought, 
Notice how you're judging yourself and other people all the time. You have whoever's listening, you have a judgment about me and you have a judgment about Zach. And, and Zach and I have judgments about each other, positive and maybe negative. Who knows? Let's be aware of our judgments with acceptance and caring intent. And as we focus on awareness with acceptance of, with, and caring, with acceptance and caring intent, awareness of sensation and emotion and thought and judgment, we also have desire. Do I want to stand up? Do I want to sit down? What do you want right now? You want to hear more about attunement? What do you want? Be aware of what you want with acceptance, caring intent. And now we're tuning to ourselves. Now, if I want to attune to you, even though I can't see you, Zach, I can project into you because I can hear you. I can, I have senses, you know, you and I are connected energetically. I wonder what Zach's sensing in his body and feeling and thinking. I wonder what Zach's judgments are of himself and of me and of the world. I wonder what Zach's wanting right now. And as I send my attention to you with acceptance and caring intent, I'm attuning to you. So how do you feel, Zach, as you do this? Hearing you, I feel very relaxed. I noticed how your pacing of your voice was slower and slower. And that reminded me of just how commonly meditations are often guided in both the turning within that eventually turns outward. And I've been thinking a lot lately just in my own practice, because I teach a lot of yoga, and we always say this word, namaste. And I feel like it works in both directions. We can look within and then notice the divine spark inside. And then we look without and we're like, wait a second, everyone out here is also the divine spark. But we can also notice the divine spark in others and then realize, oh, that's also me. And it's that lovely like feedback loop of the better we get in touch with ourselves, the better we are in touch with others and the better in touch with others, the better in touch we are with ourselves. Yeah, pretty magical. Now, think about the last argument you had with your lover. You know, the, you know, it could have been years ago. It could have been this morning. Think about that last, <laughs> think about that last argument, right? So, you know, in that argument, whoever it is, as far as you're concerned, they're acting badly and they need to hear about it. All right. So now what if at that moment I go, okay, I want to anchor on the divine spark in me, speaking to the divine spark in you. And how would that argument have gone differently? And what that's doing is taking this connection, which this is why everybody loves yoga so much. Yoga comes from the Sanskrit yoke, connecting heaven and earth, you know, spirit and body. And that's why we meditate. We meditate to develop the interior instruments to be able to explore those realms. I call it the other world. If we can have access to that through multiple states of consciousness, not only is it a great aid to our own development and our own movement through the world, it's a resource we can go to when we're in conflict. You know, in my book, Loving Completely, I wanted to make all this stuff accessible to everybody. And how do you do that? And I, I, I realized throughout my career, um, if you want to access wisdom in yourself, ask yourself a question. What's the bet? What's, what, what can I do right now that serves the highest good? It's very hard to not have wisdom come out of you when you ask yourself that question. And so what are the five questions to ask about another person or about me in a relationship? What are the, the fewest number of questions that, that will reflect the dimensions that are central dimensions for establishing and sustaining love? And the best that I can come up with is the, what I call the five stars, these five questions. And I'll mention them now if you'd like. Uh, we can wait until later. Um, but that's, that was what guided me into writing that particular book. I, I wanted to start with those five questions so that everyone had a touchstone for how do, how do I explore this moment with you and with myself um, in a way that's accessible? Yeah, I'd love to get into those five questions, but I want to follow up with what I've been hearing from you. Sure. Because earlier you mentioned how we're attracted to negativity and it pulls us in, I feel, almost like when we're in an argument with our partner and we both start defending our positions and our stress response system gets activated and how easy it is to even like interpret somebody else's words in a more negative way than they are implying like one partner might say something like, oh, you forgot to do that thing that I asked you to do. And the other one says like, are you saying I'm careless and forgetful? <laughs> it's like, right. so once we notice 
that pattern, right? Once we notice that pull, once we notice the rise in our anger, how do we shift that conversation to more connection? So let me give you a little preliminary before I answer the question about how to shift. I wrote a book called The Gift of Shame uh, a while ago because shame was misunderstood as a developmental driver. And certainly the defenses were misunderstood. We Between the ages, infants under 10 months don't feel shame. They don't blush when someone disapproves of them. There's not enough separate sense of self. But when there's a separate sense of self, starting around 10 or 11 months, you disapprove of an infant and they'll blush. And their muscles around their neck will get will get weak in their chest and they'll feel shame, which is an unpleasant affect. And from 10 to 17 months, um, that happens about every eight minutes with kids because they're learning how to be social. And they don't, they're not learning by reading books about it at 11 months old, 12 months. They're learning by approvals and disapprovals. And those little disapprovals create these little shame emotions that cause kids to have, to have social learning. But also it's unpleasant and the nervous system defends against the unpleasantness of the shame emotion. It's a, it's a, it's a painful parasympathetic affect and too much of it is toxic. And so you develop the defenses. What are the defenses? Denial. You know, I didn't do it. Projection. You did it. Scapegoating. Go out and hit your brother. Uh, projective identification. You know, I'm not being mean. You're being mean. I need to attack you. Okay. So these, all these defenses get hardwired and and so you're using the defenses to when you're beginning to feel distressed or ashamed or anxious and practicing them at the same time that you're learning how to be virtuous and how to observe yourself and do right and the way you learn that is if you observe yourself because we're the self-observational species we're the self-aware species if you observe yourself doing something that's wrong by your standards you'll feel a shame emotion and you know either you'll make an adjustment or you'll engage in a defense and the defense generally is to turn away from self-awareness and towards whatever one of those defenses was. And with couples, it's blaming the other person rather than exploring yourself. So, okay, couples are together. And if your nervous system has a neuroception, this is a, a, a Stephen Porges term from, he's the polyvagal guy. If, if your nervous system reads threat, you enter a defensive state immediately. 40 milliseconds, you're in that defensive state. That defensive state involves amplified or numbed emotions, distorted negative perspectives, and that's where you get that negative story that you were just talking about, destructive impulses to fight or flee, and diminished capacities for empathy and self-reflection. Okay, that's the defensive state. And we practice defensive states. Every, every time you, you have one, you're practicing it, and those, those circuits in your brain are getting uh, activated and myelinated. Okay, so when we read threat, we enter a defensive state and it's associated with survival. And since we're, survival comes first, we want to do survival. And if you're a threat, if survival feels like blaming you, I better blame you. And these are all natural outgrowths of the human developmental sequence. Now, interestingly, as we begin to explore this and, and teach our unconscious better defenses, Eventually, our unconscious can learn that it's a much better defense, if I'm mad at you, to go, hmm, I wonder what I'm doing to, to create this problem, and then kind of look at it. What's valid about what you know, Zach's bummed out about me? Oh, I, here's that valid thing. I'm sorry. And, and, and maybe I can encourage Zach to see what's valid about my, my position, because Zach's a good guy and I'm a good guy. Okay? If I can remember that, well, my nervous system is saying, no, 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 you need to attack or run. Okay? Okay, it involves inhibiting that 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 the, that destructive story that shows up because we we create the story instantaneously and then start elaborating on it after about a second and a half, deconstructing that this means you always forget stuff. No, no, you just forgot stuff once. Reaching through that inhibition to self-reflection, going, "What's going on with me to cause this problem?" Reaching through to you, to overcoming that inhibition. For empathy, going, what's going on with you that might be relevant and important? Reaching for a, a way to, to soothe that amplified or numb emotion so that I get within a, a level of arousal where I can stay socially engaged. And then turning that destructive impulse to fight or flee, going, no, there's something better I can do. I can attune to myself and you, and I can look for a win-win situation that will leave us feeling better about each other. Okay, now, 
you can learn all that stuff that I just said. And I teach that to people all the time. I teach it in my classes and I teach it in psychotherapy and I teach it in my books and stuff. But then somebody does something that bums you out or pisses you off or scares you and your, your nervous system, your unconscious, your adaptive unconscious creates that state. Very hard to be self-aware of it because you're focused on the other guy, the other person. You're focused on the threat. You know, our nervous system says, focus on the threat. Don't focus on yourself. Protect yourself. So it requires practice. When that happens, oh, I'm entering in a defensive state. What do I do? Well, I attune to me, I attune to you, and I look for a win-win situation. Remember, I'm good, you're good. We're looking for a win-win situation. To do that in the face of another person with their defensive state, which is in involving them having distorted stuff about you that you want to defend, them having dis- the destructive impulses towards you that you feel are unfair, you know, them not looking into their part of it, which you think is ridiculous, them not empathizing with you, which leaves you feeling isolated and alone and abandoned by them. To, to have that awareness and make that, that shift requires effort. Now, every time you do it successfully, you are reinforcing it, you know, that those circuits are getting myelinated. But it requires doing that over repetitively hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times, before your nervous system, your unconscious learns, that's the way to go under these circumstances. And so that's what you do. And there's lots of different ways of doing it, going back to integral, depending upon what your worldview is. You know, say, say you're a fundamentalist Christian or a fundamentalist Muslim or a fundamentalist Buddhist, though there's fewer of those. Buddhism doesn't lend itself as much to fundamentalism, but there's still fundamentalist Buddhism. So the, one of the ways you can do that is to go, well, what would Jesus do? What would Buddha do? What would Muhammad do? Okay, that works. You know, what would Baha'u'llah do? Okay, if you're a rational person, you go, okay, well, this isn't working, having arguments. What's the best, what's the best way for me to guide this so that I get what, what I want and what's best for us and makes us great? If you're a more pluralistic person who's more interested in how people feel and things being fair, you go, you know, it's really not fair for me to be mean to you. I don't want to do that. And I, I want to help you. And I know you don't want to be mean to me. I want to help you. If you're an integral person, you kind of look at all these different perspectives and you go, what, what is it? What's needed right now that helps us transition out of defensive state into feeling warm towards each other? Because you're not back until you're feeling warm towards each other. You don't resolve a, an issue into neutral. It's not resolved if it's in neutral. You got to resolve it into feeling warm towards each other. Then it's resolved. And with a subjective sense that we've moved a little bit farther on whatever it is that bothers us. Yeah, I resonate with so much of what you just mentioned. And there's so many lovely nuggets of, of wisdom in what you're saying. I love how you mentioned that, how easy it is to blame the other person rather than explore ourself. And that we want to teach our unconscious better responses. And that's a challenge, right? That's the practice, of course, is intentionally responding as best as we can in the situation. And eventually the mind gets wired and the unconscious mind gets wired in a more positive way. And then I really love your question for inquiry, including the one you mentioned earlier, like, what can I do to serve the highest good? So what are the other questions? And I'll mention them, the, the, yeah, the five stars. But before I go into that, I want to go back to something you just said that I think is really important about growing your unconscious. All psychotherapy and change work involves growing your unconscious. That's, a, that's how you know that you've made a, a, a shift, what we call a vertical shift. You, you've transformed. When you're in a situation where typically you would have responded worse, and now you have a, a reflex, a habit of responding better. That's your unconscious having grown, having up-leveled, which is what marks all development. And generally, our conscious self, which is quite agile and can understand things quite quickly, is ahead of our unconscious self. And I wrote a book called Shadow Light about this that said the the shadow of the human being is the entire adaptive unconscious, which is always reading the environment and sending us either pro-social and positive impulses or sending us um, defensive impulses and uh, which are generally um, destructive. And that as we become aware of that flood of constructive and destructive shadow that's always coming into consciousness instantaneously in response to our, ourselves in the world, as we become aware of that and we say yes to the constructive shadow and we take the destructive stuff and recognize it and then dialysize it, turn it into constructive, we accelerate the development of our unconscious, of our shadow self. And that's, that's basically how change happens. That's how growth happens. And it's a big deal. And it happens in pretty much every arena. And uh, it was important enough that I wrote my book, uh, 
shadow light illuminations at the edge of darkness about that process and how it occurs in every realm, professionally, personally, sexually, spiritually, and so on. Um, and, and relationally, which brings us to the five stars. And I encourage my clients to, to talk about these on their second or third date. The five stars are, is there a, a sexual spark, an erotic polarity between me and another person? Because if I'm looking for a pair bond, that's a, that love affair requires a spark between somebody's masculine energy and somebody's feminine energy. And, you know, that tracks often off of male and female, but not always. But there's a polarity. It's, it's like, you know, you don't get sparks when you have two positives or two negatives. You get a spark with a positive and a negative going together. Is there a spark of erotic polarity between me and this other person? That's the first star, the first question. The second question is, does this person maintain their physical and psychological health? That doesn't mean that people are buff and happy all the time, but it means that they, they stay in a, in a state of, of harmony. And if they're not in a state of harmony, they do things and ask for help to get back into a state of harmony, both psychologically and physically, and do things to maintain their psychological and physical health. Like meditation, for instance, helps maintain psychological health. That's the second star. The third star is if you and I were in conflict, if I was in conflict with this person, would they be able or, and willing to do what it takes to get back to love? Able, meaning, do you have the resolve to do it in the face of these unpleasant defensive states? And do you have the, the knowledge, the capacity for self-regulation, self-awareness? And willing being, is it important enough for you to stay at it until we get back to love? Because remember, that fight-flight you know, instinct in defenses, the, the flight instinct is, let me get away from this dangerous person. So the third one is, if we are in conflict, would, would this person be able and willing to get back to love? The fourth one is, would this person show up appropriately for a child or a family member? I remember when I talked to, this to my, my 16-year-old daughter, she said, look, daddy, I just want to date somebody. I don't want to have a kid with them. <laughs> and I said, you know, this is, God, 16 years ago now, Jesus. Anyway, I said, look, Zoe, I'm not, I know, and I don't want you to have a kid with, with, with guys either. But if a guy wouldn't show up appropriately for a child or a family member, that means that at some point he's not going to show up appropriately for you. And so it's an important question to ask. How you showing up appropriately, and appropriately is not codependently. Appropriately is appropriately. Uh, so that's the fourth star. And the fifth star is, does this person feel a sense of appreciation and admiration for what's sacred to me? And do they have something with themselves that's more important to them than them? Something larger. It could be a spiritual thing. It could be parenting. It could be even a, a, their art, or it could be even a sport of some sort. And if something like that is important to me, do they feel a sense of appreciation for that? If the answer is yes to those five things, or probably, then that's a good sign. And you're not just asking those things, those five stars about other people. You're, saying, you're asking those five stars about yourself. You know, is this person feeling a spark with me? Um, am I maintaining my psychological and physical health? Am I able and willing to get back to love? Am I willing to show up appropriate? Do I show up appropriately for a child or family member? Do I feel a sense of appreciation and admiration for what's sacred to you? And do I have something larger than myself that I'm committed to? And so these are orienting questions that help guide us in our relationship. And they lead into an infinity of other areas, depending upon where the need is. Because let's face it, relationships, modern relationships are the most challenging relationships that have ever existed. Equal power in sex, money, and um, child rearing, wanting, wanting to be both friends and lovers and life partners and business partners. This has never been true in marriages historically. Um, being, being faithful, having a, having a sexual relationship that lasts over a long period of time, it's, it's an amazing thing and a demanding th thing. The, the modern marriage requires an awful lot of sophistication to have it stay good, be good and stay good over a long period of time. So how do we meet those challenges? Well, we're aware of these dimensions. They're objects of attention for both of us. And we both care enough about these five things that, that if something's a little bit off in one of them, we put energy into finding some win-win solution that moves us forward where we can repair the injury and create some, some warmth, some positive connection. So I love all those questions. The one I resonate the most with is the last one. Does this person feel a sense of appreciation and admiration for what is sacred to me? 
Because as you mentioned, we have a strong negativity bias. And I think often we want to like solve the problems in the relationship, like work on the arguments, but we can't forget the positive, like to support our partner, to support their passions, their dreams, and also to develop our own passions and dreams and bring forward what brings us most alive and brings excitement to our life and the partnership. Thank you so much, Dr. Keith Witt, for all your <laughs> wonderful questions. I know Keith Witt is what I want to say. But, I know, it's hard. It's hard to get it out sometimes. <laughs> But I have to ask you my final question, which is this question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? I wish everyone knew that if if you focused on your own authenticity and your own development as a human being and on being caring and fair with other people and open to receive influence and change, that that you can create miracles of love in your life. And then that openness to receive influence and to grow and change is a human superpower. It's a city. And that as you practice that, you strengthen it. And if you know that, if you know that power that we all have, it's a gift to all of us, and you use it to create more self-awareness, more compassionate acceptance and understanding of yourself and of other people, that you can create miracles of love in your life. I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Witt, for coming on. I love your integration of both the secular and the spiritual. You clearly have a wealth of knowledge of both scientific theory and scientific traditions, but also the world's religions. So that integration is really wonderful, and I love your perspective. And for our listeners that want to learn more about you and this amazing work you've been doing, how can they find you? Well, first of all, thank you. Second of all, you can go to my website, Dr. Keith Witt dot com d-r-k-e-i-t-h-w-i-t-t dot com and you can see my classes and there's a million blogs and interviews and podcasts and there's a web series called therapists in the wild where for, for about 40 episodes i just wanted to rant about things so i have like 40 rants about things that were very important <laughs> to me that was a lot of fun uh, I stopped doing it because my son used to edit it for me and he, he could make them really funny. And then he went to medical school and stopped doing it. So there's there's that. So you can do that. You can uh, see my eight books. You can check them out on my website or you can go to Amazon um, Books and all my books are there. Uh, the one we've been talking about today um, was Loving Completely. And I also mentioned The Gift of Shame and um, Shadow Light. But also I wrote a book called Integral Mindfulness. Uh, well, all eight of them have stuff that I found significant enough that I wanted to invest a lot of time and energy and working with a publisher to put out into the world. So you can, you can find out about my books on, on Amazon. Check them out. If you like them, you know, buy them and um, read them and use the exercises to love better. Well, thank you, Dr. Witt, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember all the very important lessons and ideas we talked about today, including that a relationship is a love affair, friendship, and capacity to heal injuries. We maintain that relationship by being responsive and attuned to each other. And it's important to move away from blaming the other and rather explore yourself to learn your own unconscious and does this person feel a sense of appreciation and admiration for what is sacred to me. And also don't forget, you can create miracles of love in your life. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Dr. Witt. Well, thank you, Zach. That was a great summary. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.